Father in heaven, you speak. And it is gloriously wonderful that you do. For if you had not spoken, we would not know who you are. We would be groping around in the dark, trying to find out and search for who you are, if indeed our sinful hearts would have gone there. And so we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you've revealed yourself fully and finally and most satisfyingly through your son Jesus. And that through his words and your words here in scripture, you've preserved for us the message you would have us here today. So we ask now for your spirit's help. We ask for your spirit to soften our hearts, to clear our minds, to receive this word, to understand it and to be ready to be challenged by it. We pray for your spirit's help for myself to speak clearly from this as I ought. And we pray for your spirit's help to apply this and live for you, trusting you and for your, our, your glory and our joy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, our family was on holiday in Sydney. And for part of the trip, we house sat a place for one of our friends. Now, when you're looking after someone's house, the first thing you need to know is the security code for the alarm, if they have one. And well, this house had one, but it was a very convoluted system. You see, once I set the alarm, which was near the front door, I had 90 seconds to backtrack through the house and exit through the garage. I couldn't walk out the front door, which was just over there, because that would set off the alarm and it would go off straight away. So I had to go back through the house, close particular doors, and because they had a cat, I had to let the cat out in this area, but I couldn't let him out in the living room, because if he was in the living room, he would set off the alarm. So I had to let the cat out into this area. So set the alarm, close this door, open this up, close this other door, open this up, close that door, go out through the garage, hit the closed garage door, and then try and get out like Indiana Jones before the garage door came down on me. And then when I got back, I had to do the same. I had to go into the garage. I couldn't go in through the front door because that would set off the alarm. So I had to go through the garage. I would have to open up. I'd have to leave the family in the car. I'd have to take my shoes off, uh, open the door because the cat was there. I had to make sure that he was safe. And so I had to open that door, close that door, come over to this door, open this door, and had 30 seconds from then on, as soon as I entered the house, to switch off the alarm. It was madness every single day going in and out. Now, I found out later, because I was house-sitting the house of the parents of one of my friends, um, I found out later that this convoluted security system was installed because about 15 years earlier, the house had been broken into. Now, it wasn't much of a break-in. The only thing that was stolen was a VCR, which is utterly useless these days. But a VCR was stolen. Now, even though it was a simple break-in, it was very simple, the house owners decided to install this security system because they needed to feel safe. They needed to do whatever it took to make themselves feel safe. Even this ridiculous, even if it was a little ridiculous, to get in and out of the house. So we all need to feel secure. We all need to feel safe. It's a very human thing. It's very natural. We all need to feel safe. But what lengths will we go to to get that? What lengths will we go to to achieve safety and security? See, that's the question that comes before Judah in our passage 
today. Judah has the rising threat in the not-too-distant future. Remember, Assyria is the main superpower of the day, and it's gaining more and more power. Having already decimated Israel, they are now looking to Judah, the southern kingdom, and licking their lips, hungry to take their land. And what was Judah going to do? To what lengths would they go to secure their safety? In the past 11 years in Australia, we have had six changes of Prime Minister. If you are seeing double, that's right. Now, if you haven't worked that out, that means that no Prime Minister since 2007 has lasted one three-year term as the leader. On average, we've had a change of Prime Minister every two years. Now, this is all the more astonishing given that the Prime Minister before 2007 led the country for more, almost 11 years by himself. Well, now, one of the chief causes for this recent high turnover of leaders has been the perception of poor leadership. Leaders who just couldn't communicate to the public or couldn't work well with the party that they were leading. Poor leadership is the problem, one of the problems that Judah has. Bad leadership. Chapter 28 concentrates some of its effort into explaining this problem. So if you've got your Bibles there, look at chapter 28, verse 7, and notice what these leaders are up to. We see them drunk on wine and strong drink. Now, particularly disturbing is that the prophets and priests are leading the way in this drink up. Remember, prophets and priests, their job was to mediate God to the people. They were the go-between. You wanted to talk to God, you couldn't do it by yourself. You had to go to a priest or you had to hear the word from a prophet. But instead of giving clear vision and steady judgment, we read, they reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. Uh, this disgusting picture of drunkenness is on full display in chapter 28, verse 8. Read with me. Their tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Can you imagine this massive dinner table surrounded by all these drunken men vomiting left, right, and center. Wine and alcohol are good gifts from God given to gladden the hearts of men, but this is a picture of sinful excess, of gross misuse, of evil indulgence. Now, when the leaders of God's people are this messed up, what hope do they have? It's not just a drinking problem. It's also a pride problem. Chapter 28, verses 9 to 10, carry this sense that these leaders have contempt for anyone who would correct them. There's a sense in verse 9 that they're saying, who are we, children, that you would teach us? And this is kind of backed up by verse 10 as well. Verse 10, as you can see, has that kind of odd little phrase, but literally in Hebrew, it looks like this. Sav letzav, sav letzav, kav lekav, kav lekav. That sounds like babble, and I think intentionally so. It's meant to sound like the babbling of babies, like when you look at a baby and you go goo goo gaga, right? The irony here is that these drunk priests and prophets are so foolish in their behavior that they end up being the childish ones. Right? They're accusing people of treating them as children, but they actually are little babies. 
And when they're not drunk, and when they're not acting like babies, they're giving bad advice. Remember, the Assyrian crisis is looming. The superpower of the day is on the move, and Judah is in their sights. And remember, the land of Judah sits in this intersection. If you wanted to go anywhere from north to south or east to west, you had to go through Judah. Controlling Judah and that land was therefore crucial. And so with this looming crisis of Assyria wanting to take their land, what is offered to them? What hope is offered to them? First, an alliance with Egypt is reached. Now, from God's point of view, this is a covenant with death. He says in Isaiah 28, 15, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, the place of the dead, we have an agreement. Right? Going to Egypt, forming an alliance with them, it's like forming an alliance with death. It's like signing your death certificate. This is ridiculous. More on this in a moment. But one of the results of this alliance is false assurance. Now, Isaiah spends chapters 28 to 29 laying out a terrible vision of where this alliance will end up. And it's basically all bad news. When you get to 29.11, the people respond to this vision, this bad news, with willful blindness. They, there's an unwillingness to read. And for those who, can actually, who actually cannot read, they refuse to find someone to help them to read. They have literally turned a blind eye. All the way back in chapter 6, Isaiah saw this coming when he was told by God, keep preaching to the, keep, to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand, see but do not perceive. And in their blindness, they carry on with false and shallow religion. Everything's going to be fine, just, just keep going the way it is. Chapter 29, verse 13. Read with me, 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear, the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You see, the, the people appear to be worshiping God in what they say. Now, if you had been listening in to what they were saying, I think most of us sitting here would be able to shout out a hearty amen to what they were saying but see that their hearts are far from God. Their religion is all on the surface. Underneath the real them, they are not interested in knowing God at all. Words that praise God and pray to Him mean nothing if they are not met with hearts that are actually in relationship with Him. So with a national crisis looming, Judah's leaders are missing in action and the people are intentionally and blissfully ignorant. Their trust was in the wrong thing, and their actions were bearing that out. Their trust was in the wrong thing, and their actions were bearing it out. Just over a hundred years ago, the RMS Titanic set sail on her maiden voyage from Southampton to New York. The ship was billed as practically unsinkable. For the estimated 2,200 passengers there were only enough lifeboats for a thousand of them. With the ship sinking and impending death for those not in a lifeboat, the ship's band was encouraged to play upbeat music to keep the remaining passengers upbeat. You can hardly blame them for that. I mean, 
what else could you have done? But in a moment of crisis, Judah had another option. They didn't need to just remain upbeat in their their certain fate and and their certain doom. They had a choice. They had an option to be saved. Instead, they chose a false solution, an alliance with Egypt. Now, as we read, as Jessica wonderfully read out for us before, this alliance with Egypt doesn't make God happy. And it's not just because they formed an an alliance with a nation that God told them never to go back to. But as you can see in chapter 30, verses 1 to 2, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. It's not that you plan that's the issue. It's that you did it without me. You didn't even ask. And not only was it not God's plan, but it was with a nation that was spent. Verse 7, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. Now, the mention here of Rahab is not a reference to Rahab the prostitute in Joshua. Rahab was a large mythical creature of great power and strength. And yet here, Rahab is pictured as sitting still, old, exhausted. Egypt was like Inuka, Singapore's first polar bear, but in his final days, looking tired and haggard, arthritis hindering his hind legs, dental problems left, right and centre, and general old age-related issues. Much more humane to put him down than to let him live on and die of old age. Egypt was a spent power, and an alliance with them made no sense. Assyria, they were the young male lion on the prowl, and you form an alliance with this old beast? The end result is not pretty. You jump over to chapter 34, and God turns his attention to the nation of Edom, And he uses them as an example of what will happen to Judah. Now, Judah and Edom, they've got a long history, going all the way back to the original brothers, the twins, Jacob and Esau, and their rivalry. God now pictures Edom turning into a barren wilderness, and their destruction is what God will bring Judah into as well. So chapter 34, verse 9, Edom becomes a desert. Their, their land is turned into pitch and sulfur, a burning wasteland. Chapter 34, verse 11. Wild animals like the hawk, the owl, the raven, and the porcupine now possess the land. This is truly a wild wilderness. Chapter 34, verse 13. Thorns and thistles grow uncontrollably. They, they're pictured as becoming a fortress of weeds. See, trusting Egypt is foolish for so many reasons. And the biggest foolish reason is that trusting them means not trusting God. And not trusting God brings the curse of being brought into a desert wasteland. Now, if Judah were tempted to trust themselves in their political maneuvering and their alliance with Egypt, and if it was all foolish in God's sight, then the wise choice to make, the choice that leads to life, is the choice to trust God as their king. 
The opening verses of chapter 32 talk about God sending a righteous king to rule in justice. The end of chapter 33, Isaiah makes it explicit that Yahweh is the one who is their king. He is the one that they are to trust. And then in verse 30, chapter 30, verse 15, have a look at chapter 30, verse 15. See how he will save them. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Returning and rest, quietness and trust, it is faith and faith alone that will save them. Faith is pictured here in contrast to the fear-driven, worry-based, frantic searching for an alliance. Faith is pictured as rest, as quietness. There's a story told of a missionary who was in Africa who was having trouble translating the word faith in the Gospel of John for this tribe. He just couldn't find the right word in their language for it. So one day a native comes from another community with a message of huge importance. And so this native has run the whole day and is completely exhausted. This native gets to the village, blurts out the message, and then throws himself in a heap into a nearby hammock. He lets out this big sigh of relief and utters a word the missionary has never heard before. Now the missionary quickly asks, tell me, what word did you just say? The native repeats the word again and he says, Master, it means... I'm resting all my weight here. It was the perfect word to describe what faith is. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here too. Resting all my weight. You have fears? You have worries? That are, you have worries that are weighing you down? Rest all of that weight and yourself in God. Faith means quietly trusting Him. And if you do that, He will be your strength. Faith also means waiting for God that we heard in chapter 30. But when Judah took the initiative to make their alliance, it was bad. So in 33 verse 2, Isaiah and the faithful remnant voiced their faith. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Faith means waiting for God to take the initiative to save. And when you quietly trust Him and wait for Him, He will save. Now the result of this faith, this result of this good choice, this true solution, is that the wilderness becomes a garden. Long story short, it, the, the, the wilderness that, that Edom is going to be destroyed and turned into, that Judah will be led into because of their alliance, because of their faithlessness, gets transformed. And it becomes a fruitful field. And it blossoms with flowers. I had to Google what a crocus was. It's a flower. I had no idea. I'm a guy. And we have these wonderful words right at the end. Chapter 35, verse 10. Turn with me. To 35 verse 10. Chapter 35 verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Trust yourself, and it will be misery and destruction. Trust God, and it will be joy and blossoms. Trust yourself, you'll be a fool who dies. Trust God, and you'll be wise and live. Now, when you put the choice like that, it seems pretty obvious which one you would choose, right? But they chose wrong. Flick back with me again to chapter 30, verse 15. Chapter 30, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness, and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling... And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. With an obvious choice, they chose wrong. They were unwilling. Their hearts already hardened. Uh, God's commission to Isaiah in chapter 6, preached to dull their ears and blind their eyes is terribly playing itself out. But even within our chapters today, there is a hint that this message of destruction and hope, an offer of hope, wasn't just for the Jews of Isaiah's day. It was actually for a future generation. See, the Jews in Isaiah's day, they they had hardened their hearts already. For them, the game was over. But for a future generation, this message was preserved. You see it in chapter 30, verse 8. Chapter 30, verse 8. Now go... Write it before them on a tablet and ascribe it in a book that they may be for a time to come as a witness forever. You see, this same message was preserved for a future generation and it will continue to challenge them. The choice that lay before Isaiah and his people was a choice that lay before them as well. Empires come and go. In Isaiah's day, it was Assyria. Shortly after, it would be Babylon. Then after that, it would be Persia, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and so on, and so on, and so on. And in each generation, God's people are faced with this choice. Who will you trust? In the face of crisis, in the face of nations and societies that will seek to oppress you, who will you trust? See, in the light of all of that, our New Testament reading is fascinating to explore. Uh, Jessica read out for us Luke chapter 7. Let's recap the story again very briefly. In the Gospel of Luke, already at the very beginning, John the Baptist saw Jesus. He baptized him in the River Jordan. And when he did that, he saw the heavens open, the Spirit descend upon Jesus, land on him like a dove, and he and all everyone else around them heard the voice say, You are my son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So John is like, wow, the Messiah has come. Carry on a few months later though, John finds himself in prison. He's beginning to doubt. Was Jesus really the Messiah King we were waiting for? 
if he's the Messiah King that we were waiting for, what am I doing in chains? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, find out once and for all if Jesus is he who says he is who he says he is, or if he is, if the Messiah is still yet to come. And so they ask, they, they arrive and they ask Jesus, are you the one that we've been waiting for, or shall we look for another? And what Jesus says is drawn from our passage, actually, he actually quotes from Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, he says this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. See, he doesn't just answer, yes, I am the one. He answers with the evidence of all that he's been doing. And the evidence points so clearly to the fact that Jesus is the one predicted to come. The days of salvation that Isaiah spoke about are here. But at that, John's messengers leave, and we never, we're never told what John and his disciples thought about all that. It's almost as if Luke is leaving us with the hanging question that Isaiah did as well. If you have heard this word, are you going to believe it? Are you going to trust? See, over the past few weeks, the recurring theme of trust forces us to examine ourselves. So as we sit back now and work out essentially not just what chapters 28 to 35 are saying, but what chapters 13 to 35 are saying, we have this big question of who are you going to trust right in the center of it all? Who do you trust? Because if you're putting your trust in the wrong thing or the wrong person, then you're in for a terrible ride. Over the past few weeks, I've been addressing the non-Christians among us. Partly because if you are or not, if you're not a Christian or not sure, I love that you're here with us. The book of Isaiah is a heady book, even for Christians, to get their heads around. And if you've been with us for this long, you deserve a free coffee. Come and speak to me afterwards. <laughs> One of the big things that you might have heard Christians talk about is this idea of having faith in God, of having faith in Jesus. But what does that all mean? Well, the word faith simply means trust. When Christians talk about faith, we're not talking about a blind faith, but we're talking about trusting God at His Word. Now, when the Bible uses the word faith, it means trust. We trust someone that we believe. We believe what they say. And then we act on that trust by relying on what that person says. And so the Bible calls us to believe God's Word to believe God when he says that you have a major problem and it's called sin. Your sins are those things in your thoughts and in your actions and in your heart that break God's commands, that rip your relationship with him apart and that profoundly disappoint him. To believe that if you remain in your sin, that he looks upon you with profound disappointment. So much so that the only thing he can do then is to pour out his righteous judgment on you. To know how big a problem this is, please have a listen to Pastor Ben's sermon from last week. The reality of God's judgment needs to smack us all in the face constantly. 
That's the first thing we need to believe, that our sin is the biggest problem you have in your life because it leads to the big problem of God's judgment. The Bible also calls us to believe God when he says that even though you are a sinner, he loves you. He demonstrates this love by sending his son Jesus to die in your place. Instead of you taking the judgment that you deserve, God has sent his son Jesus as a substitute, taking the judgment in your place. The Bible says that Jesus does this for you freely. You can't do anything to earn this or pay it back. And then the Bible calls us to believe that the only way we can be forgiven of our sin is to trust that Jesus has died in our place, not just once, but to constantly and to keep trusting this good news for the rest of our lives. So friends, if you're not a Christian or not sure and and you want to find out more, then please come and speak to me afterwards. Speak to myself, Pastor Ben, or the friend who brought you here today. Please make sure that you're trusting the right thing in this life. Because today and last week and the week before, those messages have reminded us constantly that we cannot trust anything or anyone else for our salvation. And if you are a Christian today, today's passage also calls us to examine ourselves, especially what alliances we might have formed. See, Judah needed security and safety, so they went to Egypt. Sometimes in our fear, we run to other things and form alliances with them as well. See, we, we, everyone needs security and safety. It's, a hu- it's human to want and need it. And these chapters in Isaiah and how they are fulfilled in Jesus remind us that Christians need to look to Jesus constantly for our security and our safety. But sometimes trusting Jesus doesn't feel like enough. Trusting Jesus alone is not enough. And so for the students here, here's here's how it might work out. You might trust Jesus, but you know that the future is not secure, and you worry about that. And so you form an alliance with good marks to secure your future. Whether it be for a good university placement or your dream job, this alliance with studying hard and getting good marks promises safety. Would you instead trust God, resting in His promises that He has your ultimate future secure in Him, that no matter what happens between now and seeing Jesus, that endpoint is secure and that endpoint is of greater importance. Would you trust that? Now, that does not mean no more studying and slacking off. You remain faithful in your studies, but you also remain faithful in reading the Bible diligently. You remain faithful in attending Bible study. You remain faithful in encouraging other Christians around you. Why is it that exam times are the times when I see attendance in across fellowship groups dip? What are we afraid of? What alliances have we made to, in order to secure our future? If you're a worker here, this is how it might work out. You might trust Jesus, 
But again, there are still worries about the future as well. Can you afford a house? Can, can your career grow? Will you be able to maintain your job status and performance? And so you form an alliance with work. And you promise to work harder and for longer hours because that's the way you can feel safe about paying off the mortgage or keeping up your job performance. What will it look like for you to trust Jesus and to turn away from this and turn to trust Jesus instead? As a parent here, today's Father's Day as well, uh, I'm reminded of the multiple fears that I have for my children growing up. You know, one day, a number of you are going to get married and have kids of your own. And it will strike you at some point when you're changing a dirty nappy that this person's no longer going to need a nappy and they're going to grow up and they're going to be independent. And you're going to have to wade them through that. My older son, Jaden, is six. I'm so not looking forward to him being a teenager. Not just because he'll be a teenager, but because I know what it was like to be a teenager, to know the influences, positive and negative, in our world. I have a, this whole, you know, same-sex marriage debate, transgender debate, all that kind of stuff. I'm really worried about what, how to wade my children through that. I'm really worried about what it will be like for them as Christians, whether they'll be bullied, whether they'll have friends, whether they'll, you know, be influenced by the wrong people. But you know what this passage does today? It reminds me that I need to keep trusting God. And I do that quietly and faithfully. And so I will continue to read the Bible with my kids. I'll continue to pray for them. And I'll continue to make Jesus their number one priority in their life. And I need to trust that God will take care of the rest. See, the dominant response called for in these chapters is to trust. And praise God that he shows us his willingness to come and to help his people. It's not just, he's not just saying, just trust my word. But he shows a willingness to come and help. And the sending of his son Jesus not only confirms his willingness, but also demonstrates his power to change us. We're not like Judah anymore. We don't have the stubborn, hard hearts that are destined for destruction. We have His Spirit now poured out in our lives. And with the Spirit softening our hearts, receiving His Word, the question remains, will I be willing to keep trusting Jesus above all else for my security and safety? Let me pray and ask God to help us with that. Father in heaven, help us to not be foolish and to seek, uh, to take the initiative to, to bring ourselves, to give ourselves security and safety in this life. Help us to be wise, to trust you. And thank you that in sending your son Jesus, you prove yourself faithful and willing to help, to help us to trust that. Help us to not doubt it. Help us to live faithfully, trusting you for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.